0: When the time for the death he had come to die drew near, Jesus turned his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, would live up to its reputation. The same crowds that welcomed him with enthusiasm would, with even more zeal, demand his execution. Jesus knew this would happen He knew the horrors that awaited him in the city, whose people he would have gathered as a hen gathers her chicks, but they would not. They would not let him. They would not have him. He came unto his own, John writes, and his own received him not. Though guiltless, he would be tortured, and his bloodied body would hang until he breathed his last from the wooden beams of a Roman cross. What was he doing there? Why did he have to die? What was happening on that mount of crucifixion? Well, for the next six Sundays, as we make our way to Easter, we'll be answering these questions and others like them in a series of messages titled, Look at the Cross. The old spiritual asks, were you there? Were you there? when they crucified my Lord? And the answer is yes. I was there and they didn't crucify him, I did. I hope over the next several weeks to place us at Calvary, to place us where Jesus died. I want us to gaze on the cross together. To see our Savior on it, to grasp as best we can what it was like for our Lord to endure this punishment, and what it means that he would die such a cruel and undeserved death. In this series, we're going to tackle big biblical themes like propitiation and justification and substitutionary atonement, and going to do our best to bring these to street level and prayerfully we'll see. They're not just theological terms. They are truths that apply very personally and practically. And fair warning, we're going to be dealing at times with graphic details, not for their shock value, but because that's what they are, shocking. The cross is something so dreadful, R.C. Sproul called it the most obscene symbol in human history. It's something so dreadful that we may be tempted to turn our eyes away from it. We certainly would like to sanitize it a little bit, clean it up, make it more presentable. At the same time, there is something strangely attractive about the cross. For again, in the words of R.C. Sproul, in its ugliness, it remains the most eloquent testimony to our human dignity. Would you join me in prayer that the Lord would use this time in his word, today, the series of messages, to add to our awareness and our appreciation for the love that God has for us, the lengths to which he has gone to save us and reconcile us to himself eternally. Our gracious Father, we do ask that your presence be felt and your truth be heard this morning. And through this series of messages as we journey to Easter and we turn our eyes especially to the cross, With the hymn writer, we ask that you might bring its scenes before me, that we would neither escape the scandal of the cross, nor its message of justice, mercy, and grace. Amen. Amen. On a hill far away stood an old, rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. Suffering and shame. As we look to the cross this morning, the cross on which the sinless Son of God was hung, we make these observations. It was a place of great suffering and an instrument of great shame. And it was designed to be both. Crucifixion was a form of capital punishment, the execution of a person by nailing or hanging that person to a cross. No one is sure when, where, how this practice of crucifying people began. Some say with the Persians long before Jesus' day. We don't know exactly when the practice of crucifixion started, but we do know this. At some point, it was zealously adopted by the Romans. Exactly how many people were crucified under the order of Rome could never be ascertained, but Appian reported that following the defeat of Spartacus, the victor, Crassus, had 6,000 prisoners crucified on the Via Appia between Capua and Rome. In his article, 10 Powerful Facts About the Cross of Christ and the Crucifixion of Jesus, Sam Storms writes about the historian Josephus, who was describing the fate of the Jews taken captive in 70 AD, you might recall. That was a time when Jerusalem was destroyed. Josephus says the Roman soldiers, out of the rage and hatred they bore the prisoners, nailed those they caught in different postures to the crosses by way of jest, and their number was so great That there was not enough room for the crosses and not enough crosses for the bodies so while we don't know how many people overall were crucified by the romans we do know it was a lot it was a common occurrence it was commonly understood which explains in part why when it comes to the killing of jesus the new testament writers don't give us a ton of vivid details. They don't have to. Instead, they opt for the simple, they crucified him. Everyone in that first century audience would have known exactly what that meant. And furthermore, the details would be so gruesome and repugnant, so horrific, that they wouldn't be discussed in good company and no one would be particularly eager to read of them nor to write of them. The people being crucified were intended to suffer. The whole process was excruciatingly painful. It was supposed to be drawn out. In Jesus' case, he was beaten and whipped and a crown of thorns was pushed down upon his head before undergoing the usual treatment of everyone else who's killed in this manner. The person was stripped of his garments His limbs are extended on a T-shaped wooden post. His feet are fastened to a cross by one spike through the heels, arms outstretched, secured by driving one nail each through the forearms. The cross is lifted up and dropped in its place, with a force great enough to dislocate bones. In this position, the crucified could look upon his accusers and those who were mocking him crucifixion was public very public not only was it a punishment but the romans viewed it as a means of deter a deterrent a deterrent how do you say that they wanted those killed in this manner to be on display as a warning to others cross the line and you might experience this very same One way or another, crucifixion led to death. It was not usually a quick death. It wasn't supposed to be a quick death. One scholar writes, oftentimes a small peg or block of wood called a sedecula was fixed midway up the vertical beam providing a seat of sorts. Its purpose was to prevent premature collapse and thus prolong the victim's agony. Being lifted up in the air on a cross, exposed to the elements, suffering blood loss, those are debilitating realities, but not usually what caused the death of the one being crucified. As Zeus and Sekulis point out, death by crucifixion was the result of the manner in which the condemned man hung from the cross and not the traumatic injury caused by nailing. Hanging from the cross resulted in a painful process of asphyxiation in which the two sets of muscles used for breathing, the intercostal chest muscles and the diaphragm, became progressively weakened. In time, the condemned man expired due to the inability to continue breathing properly. D.A. Carson describes it this way, whether tied or nailed to the cross, the victim endured countless paroxysms as he pulled with his arms and pushed with his legs to keep his chest cavity open for breathing and then collapsed in exhaustion until the demand for oxygen demanded renewed paroxysms. The scourging, the loss of blood, the shock from the pain all produced agony that would go on for days at times, ending it last by suffocation, cardiac arrest, or loss of blood. When there was reason to hasten death, the execution squad would smash the victims legs and if you're reading john's gospel in john chapter 19 verses 31 to 33 you will see um, how the jews asked for the romans to break the legs of those on the cross but by the time they got to jesus he was already dead and they didn't need to break his legs but once they did break those legs death would follow almost immediately from shock from collapse and cut off breathing So the cross was a place of great anguish, of intense physical pain and suffering. It was also an instrument of shame. The shame of the cross, some say, was as great, perhaps worse than the pain of the cross. As a means of death, crucifixion was designed to break both a man's body and spirit. The executions, as I've noted, were public. Often the place of crucifixion would be in a high location or at the intersection of roads where people would be walking by, and that is so that the ones who who were being killed could be clearly seen. The reason for this, writes one author, was to intensify the sense of social and personal humiliation. The ones hanging on the cross were spectacles, naked, bloody, spasming, writhing, moaning, all that for the entertainment of the onlookers, the by, treated as subhuman, treated with indifference by the soldiers overseen with the task of watching their deaths. Bless you. We know one of the Aims of crucifixion was humiliation because sometimes even the bodies of those who had been executed in other ways were nailed to crosses and suspended for all to see. Did you know that? The corpses of the crucified could be left hanging for days. They could become food for birds or scavenging dogs. So horrific was the suffering and the shame of crucifixion that Julius Caesar was called merciful, when on occasion he allowed his enemies to have their throats slit before hanging their dead bodies on the crosses. From a Jewish perspective, the shame of death on a cross was immense. The Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, says anyone hanged on a tree is considered cursed by God. Later, the Apostle Paul would quote this in his letter to the Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The fate of the crucified was evidence, they believed, of God's judgment. And so Isaiah predicted of our suffering Savior, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The shame of the cross was, in D.A. Carson's view, one of the reasons that the Jews demanded that Jesus be crucified and not simply banished. It was aimed at arousing maximum public revulsion toward him. Their goal in having Jesus crucified was to declare that Jesus was no friend to man or God. Finally, we should note that those who came to view a crucifixion, were not usually sympathetic to the crucified. I don't know what it is exactly that arouses people to want to see another person suffer. I guess there is some part of seeing someone in a bad situation that makes one feel better about his own. In any event, the person on the cross was subject to more than a gawking crowd, but to the verbal taunts of three men and women who would gather below. And even those who were walking by. In the 27th chapter of Matthew's gospel that we read earlier, it says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So, Also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. You see there a mixture of the passage from Matthew, 27 portions were read, Psalm 22 as well. So as we look at the cross, we see the beams for what they are, truly an emblem of suffering and shame. George Bernard was right, an emblem emblem of suffering and shame. Suffering, 10 on a scale of 1 to 10. Shame, 10 on a scale of 1 to 10. At Calvary, we see the perfect, sinless Jesus enduring unimaginable suffering that he did not deserve and agonizing shame that he did not earn. So let me ask you this, friends. If it's not his suffering and it's not his shame, whose is it? Whose is it? The the prophet Isaiah tells us, surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. This is Jesus on the cross. There is suffering. There is shame. We should know this, what Jesus went through for us. And we should feel it. But that's not all that's going on. There's an exchange taking place here that we need to know about. We have been looking at the cross. Now I want you to look beneath it. As Jesus hangs on the cross, soldiers linger below. Matthew and Mark both tell us what they were doing. Do you remember? They're casting lots for his clothing. That Jesus' clothes are on the ground tells us, as we would have guessed that he was not wearing them in other words he was naked some believe because of a jewish sense of decency that jesus would have been wearing a loincloth some sort of covering i don't i doubt that because i believe the ones who were responsible for his execution had more hate for jesus than they did love for social convention Because crucifixion was designed to be total humiliation. Artists' depictions over the years have included a covering of sorts for the sake of modesty. And they could be accurate, but I don't think they are. Jesus is naked. Where else do we read about anyone being naked in the Bible? Maybe your mind goes back way back to the Garden of Eden. After they were created, Adam and Eve lived without clothing. They had no need of clothing because, as a Scottish theologian, Thomas Boston, believed, they lived in the reflected glory of God. He wrote, man was then a very glorious creature. We have reason to suppose that as Moses' face shone when he came down from the mount, so man had a very lightsome and pleasant countenance and beautiful body, while as yet there was no darkness of sin in him at all. But seeing God himself as glorious in holiness, surely that spiritual comeliness the Lord put upon man at his creation made him a very glorious creature. There was no impurity to be seen No squint look in the eyes after any unclean thing. The tongue spoke nothing but the language of heaven. And in a word the king's son was all glorious within in his clothing of wrought gold. Naked and not afraid. (laughs) Naked and not ashamed. Not ashamed. And we read the account in Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7 of Adam and Eve eating fruit from the tree that God had forbidden them to eat from. Fruit from the tree they should not have and were told not to eat from. And here are the consequences of their disobedience. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. One might say they felt guilt after they sinned. But they did not feel guilt. They were guilty. And they felt shame. And this is what sin does. It fills us with shame. It causes us to feel shame and to want to cover up and to want to hide, to fear exposure, to want to run. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Who told you you were naked? Listen, no one had to tell them, did they? No one had to tell them they were naked. They felt it, exposed and vulnerable and now unworthy to stand in the presence of a holy and a perfect God. They are self-condemned and they wanted, they needed covering up. It came first in the leaves that they sewed together and shortly after that in the garments of animal skin that God provided for them and clothing helped to hide the shame of their sin. Now let's come back to the cross. Where is Jesus' clothing? It is on the ground. John in his gospel gives us a little more detail than the other writers. John 19, 23, 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. John points us back to the scripture that we read earlier, the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22 written centuries before Jesus was born. If you have a moment, I I encourage you to revisit that psalm sometime today and read that. Understand that it was written centuries before Jesus was born, centuries before the cross. And John's account speaks to the tunic of Jesus, that it was obviously of some value because the soldiers didn't want to just divide it up. They didn't want to tear it. He tells us it was seamless in one garment, but most importantly, this language probably... points us to something else. It resembles a garment worn by Israel's high priest. Exodus chapter 28, verse 32, if you want that reference in here, what we have at the cross, the high priest who would present a sacrifice is here himself the sacrifice, humbling himself to death, Paul would write in Philippians, even death on a cross, having chosen to cast off his equality with God and to take the form of a man coming into this world to do for us what none of us could do for ourselves, to live without sin, and him being undeserving of its consequences, he is now still on the cross. The shame of the sins of the world is upon him. He has no covering. His robe is on the ground. In order that by his sacrifice, we might one day be clothed in robes of righteousness. One writer put it this way, the first Adam originally created in the righteousness of God by his sin stripped us naked. The last Adam suffering the shame of nakedness by his obedience clothes us in the righteousness of God he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God Christ's record of perfect obedience attributed to us clothes us as the prophet Isaiah predicted in the garments of salvation his robes for mine his robes for mine his robes for mine a wonderful exchange clothed in my sin Christ suffered neath God's rage draped in his righteousness I'm justified in Christ I live for in my place he died his robes for mine what cause have I for dread God's daunting law Christ Mastered in my stead, faultless I stand with righteous works not mine, saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. His robes for mine, such anguish none can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe, he as though I, accursed and left alone, I As though he embraced and welcomed home. Let's take a moment and reflect and maybe respond to this truth of God's Word and the cross. As we're reflecting, let me pose a few questions to you, beloved. I've been wondering, when you finally one day stand before God, what will you wear? What will you be wearing? Will you stand in front of a holy God clothed in the garment of your best efforts, stained and torn by your failures and your sins? Or will you appear in the perfect, spotless robe of righteousness given to you by Jesus Christ? The only clothing that makes you fit to enter an eternal banquet. Not just what will you be wearing, but what when you stand before God will you be expecting? Will you stand quivering like Adam and Eve when they heard the voice of God and they knew their guilt and they knew they had no justification and no reason or right to stand before him? Will you expect condemnation when you stand before God? Will you understand in those moments that your sins are not forgiven and you will deserve rejection, punishment, banishment, Eternal suffering in hell. So, what will you be wearing when you stand before God? Because you will. And what will you be expecting when you stand before God? And what do you think you will be feeling in that moment? Will you stand in His presence filled with shame and regret? will you know the everlasting joy of pardon, of pardon? Jesus suffered for you, so you don't have to suffer eternally in hell. Jesus bore your shame So that you could have everlasting joy in the presence of God. Jesus gave his life on the cross so you could have everlasting life. Dear ones, I would beg you today, if you don't have everlasting life in Christ, it is yours for the asking. If you even now would answer some of those questions, I think if I stand before God, I'm going to be afraid. Then you don't have the confidence of your righteousness in Christ. It's not about what you've done. It's, it's about what he's done. If you answer those questions, I think if I stand before the Lord, I'm going to feel shame that you don't understand what it means to be totally and completely forgiven, which is exactly what the blood of Christ does and what the Bible promises. You can be clean. You can be without stain. You can stand before God with confidence and joy because you belong there. Because in Christ you belong there because of his cross, because of his grace, because of his mercy. What would keep you from having that? If you have that, you rejoice. Amen? Amen. If you don't have that, get it. Have it. Ask for it. Don't leave. Don't even leave these walls before you know that you don't have to be ashamed anymore. You don't have to carry the guilt of sin anymore. And you don't have to worry about your eternal fate anymore. Suffering, shame, but a robe of righteousness. Let's stand and sing our concluding hymn.